And welcome to another episode of the Guys with Feelings podcast, where two guys discuss the ideas, influences, epiphanies, and yes, the feelings that make them better men. My name is Jamin Yee. And I'm Gabe Rose. And today, we have a very special guest with feelings, longtime friend of mine, Annette Wong, who's joining us for the show. Annette is a writer, mindfulness coach, and part-time lawyer, amongst many other things. She is the host of the podcast Breakform, a conversation challenging conventional notions of creativity, career, and success. She identifies as an INFJ, for those of you Myers-Briggs fans out there. Junk science, not junk science. Maybe we'll get to that in a future episode. <laughs> and most importantly, she is an aspiring morning person. That's right. Annette, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. Yeah, really excited we can make this happen. Boy, you're an aspiring morning person. I really try. I mean, I, I love I love 5 a.m. in the morning, but I don't often get to see it. But when I do, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm an aspiring morning person, too. Um, but I think my definition of morning might be different than yours. What's your definition? <laughs> Pre-9.30 a.m. Yeah, I've been waking up my entire, like, my entire 20s, because, uh, you know, I, I work from home. I've been waking up, like, you know, at noon or, like, 11. So, for me, I was, like, really proud to be waking up at 9 a.m. Uh-huh. I, thought that was, I thought that was great. And now, now I'm waking up super early, which is 8 a.m. Wow. Like, oh, that is... I wake up and I, like, pat myself on the back and I'm like, wow, look at me catching the early worm. But, uh, <laughs> but you then you just, you just dropped to 5 a.m. and I was like, oh. <laughs> Every once in a while now, I'll get a text from Jamin at 7.45 a.m. And my mind is just blown. I'm like, what is Jamin doing awake at 7.45 a.m.? <laughs> what's yeah. like, have you like been like setting an alarm earlier? Like what's been the like tangible attempt at morning person-ness? I think it really is when I'm on meditation retreat, like mm. which I've been, I've, I did one at the beginning of the year um, in Joshua Tree and usually yoga and sitting begins at 6am in the morning. Um, And then I did um, two meditation teacher training retreats where again, like we had to be up by like six. And I actually love that time of day. There's something so still and quiet about it. Um, And I used to when I was uh, a student, if I couldn't finish something before the next day, I would actually instead of staying up late, I would get up early. And again, that Mm. feeling of tranquility, that time of day, there's something magical about it for me. So I really love that time of day. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I've always heard, you know, doing research on like uh, famous thinkers and creators and like their routines. And so many of them have like a really strong early morning routine. You know, like a lot of people like get up super early and, and it's like those hours before the rest of the world is kind of up and like attacking your feed and sending you notifications, which... You know, I'm not sure Thomas Edison had that problem exactly, but, but you know, it's there's something that seems to be magical about those still early hours. And also, I think, you know, it's unlike, you know, midnight or 2 a.m., it's like your body is also, like, up and, like, awake and fresh, basically. Um, and, yeah, I can see I can see the beauty in that. Uh, maybe maybe someday I'll, I'll inch a few hours closer to that. <laughs> yeah, I um, I recently I started training for a triathlon two months ago, and at, like after I signed up, I was like, oh, when am I gonna find time to train? And I just like looked at my schedule for like a minute, and I was like, oh, I I have to just start waking up at five forty five or six a.m. Like, there's no other way. Yeah. I don't have any yeah. other time in the day. And I was like, shit, I just signed myself up. Like, I'd never done that before at like all. 
I've really liked it. Yeah, it's been great. Like every once in a while, like my basic feeling about it is the alarm goes off and for six to eight minutes, it's pretty painful. (laughs) And then after that, I mean, I'm, you know, running or biking, you're just up and awake, especially if you're doing some exercise thing, then you're really up and awake. And then there's not, the pain is gone. Like it's such a temporary sort of source of pain. Um, yeah. And then maybe in the afternoon you get tired and you drink more tea. I don't know. But it's really, it's been game changing. It it lengthens out the day in this amazing, I feel like I get two days. Mm. Like people are like, oh, if there were more hours in the day, there can be more hours in the day if you just wake up earlier. It's very true. By the time it's <laughs> noon, you're like, wow, I've accomplished a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. And especially if you get up while it's still dark, which I thought I was going to hate. You guys are crazy. <laughs> but... <yeah. laughs> Y'all crazy. <laughs> but like when you get up in dark, start the day and then the sun comes up, then you really feel like you've had like an extra half a day. Totally. It's pretty, wow. Pretty nice. So yeah. James, I, there's, there's more boundaries to push ahead if you, if you sit. I choose. see that. I, I'm just a, a young Padawan. <laughs> you guys are the morning masters over here. Um, I'll say one more thing. You know, we don't have to make this entire podcast. Entire podcast about about, yeah, yeah. About, How are we going to two hours later? For a show just about waking up on. early. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, one of the things I've really enjoyed about getting a set like morning routine and waking up every day at 8 a.m., which is early for me, um, is that what I'm actually doing is because of that, I'm forcing myself every day to wake up at a certain early time for me. Um, and that forces me to cut down on my late night hours, right? It's like, okay, now I have to go to bed like 1030, you know, before 11, whatever. Um and that's been great because I'm shaving off my most unproductive hours. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. pretty much after yeah. dinner, like I'm just useless. Like that's just, I am not productive. I'm not doing, like I'm, my mind is not in a sharp state. Like, so I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm shaving off kind of my most useless or unproductive hours and adding more in the morning where like, yeah, I don't know. I can really get shit done. Um, and it feels really good. I really like it. So I'm hoping to keep on that kind of productive the morning or mid-morning train. Well, we'll add a aspiring morning person to your bio too. With a little, with a little asterisk. asterisk. Yeah, like, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Morning means, means. <laughs> and, and morning means, yeah, exactly. and, and also person means. Um, lots of caveats. It's all subjective. You know? Yeah. Yes. Oh, so many lessons there. Um, well, let's. We could talk about early mornings all day, but um, <laughs> let's dive into some other topics. Um, Annette, I would love to start by talking a little bit about sort of your recent career transition and arc. I feel like it's been a fascinating journey for you and as your friend to get to watch it a little bit from afar. And I feel like it's informed the podcast you're doing and and sort of so much of your life now. So maybe you can start by just sort of telling that story, where you were, how you made a decision to do something different, what that sort of transition has felt like and looked like. I mean, just to, to jump to the most recent past, I actually just had brunch with your wife, Sarah, who's also a former lawyer um, and who was on our podcast. But um, similar to her, I think when I was practicing law, I, I had this... So to back up, I um, am a lawyer. I still practice law, but part-time. And a year and a half ago, I decided to quit the full-time practice of law, in part, to be perfectly honest, because I burnt out spectacularly. And um, I had actually tried different types of law. So I had practiced before real estate law. I had done immigration law. Before that, I had done um, labor and employment law. And before that, I had been in Cambodia doing civil human rights um, work with the uh, tribunal that's out there. 
And I think I was still trying to navigate like where I found myself practicing law long term. And none of the settings that I was in felt quite right to me, um, even though I was pursuing kind of value oriented propositions when I was, um, you know, motivated by the justice element of what I was doing in Cambodia and um, with the civil and human rights and immigration work even. Um, but I, I think ultimately I I realized that I don't actually love being a lawyer. No matter how you do it. It yeah, sounds no like you tried how, every yeah. approach. Every year I was pretty much changing jobs. And I think part of it is that I love looking at people from a more holistic, systemic, um, human, emotional kind of level. And the law really requires you to look at people in such a narrowly focused, technical way. I mean, even even the stuff I was doing in Cambodia was pouring through old treatises and um, cobbling together opinions that would fit what the judge wanted to try and convey. But it was a lot of obscure kind of digging around and focused on these very narrow issues and like really parsing things at this really minute level that just wasn't touching on the humanity that we were trying to serve. So um, yeah, I I realized about five years into um, practicing law that it really wasn't right for me. And I also, um, two other things were happening at once. One was that I always knew that I wanted to write. So I wanted to introduce more creativity into my life. And the other thing that was happening was that I learned to meditate and it was really kind of transformative to... Um, see how the mindfulness tools that I was acquiring really changed my own approach to the stress that I was experiencing, the overwhelm that I was feeling. And I wanted to teach other people how to do the same because it really, it really was a paradigm shift for me. So that's a very kind of broad overview, but yeah, that's so cool. So it sounds like meditation was, was kind of one of the big catalysts or one of the big game changers for, for you and your journey. For sure. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like what kind of meditation were you doing and what kind of effect did it have on your life? So it really started because I was experiencing such severe um, anxiety really about how much work I had. Um, I was working um, for a corporate uh, and I still actually work part-time for them, a real estate firm, but it would just be like constant emails and deadlines and high pressure transactions that had to close and it felt like physically like my chest was beginning to constrict and tighten and I realized that you know I was too young to have heart issues so it was clearly it was stress related and I had to do something about that um so I signed up for a mindfulness-based stress reduction class which is often taught in hospitals and clinical settings, but can also be taught at meditation centers and um, inside LA and Santa Monica offers this class. And it just so happened that the person I took mindfulness-based stress reduction with is also a real estate lawyer. Um, (laughs) What are the odds? What are the odds? (laughs) And he was really essential. His name is Gulu. He's my teacher. And he was really essential to showing me that it was possible to practice law and, and teach meditation and just the tools and the way that he taught the class, like I saw how applicable these tools were in the context of like high stress, high strung professionals. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the early part of that course was about being embodied and getting back into my body. And it made me realize just how often we live up here in our brains in a cerebral world and are so cut off from the rest of what's going on. I know the two of you have spoken about your retreat experiences and 
the importance of non-doing um, and giving yourself permission to do that, which is revolutionary for, you know, when you've been taught your whole life to strive and achieve, it's, it's kind of paradigm shifting to be like, well, you know, there's actually a lot of merit in just creating space. To just not- sitting. Yeah. To being, just being human in your body. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to like talk more about that sort of integrative aspect. Cause I feel like that's, so a real challenge, let's say like you go on an amazing retreat, right? Like you have this like really transformative experience. You feel completely different. You have a whole perceptual and perspective yeah. shifts, sort of both physical and, and mental. And then you come back or you go to Burning Man or any sort of transformative experience, right? And you come back and it can be really hard to hold on to even pieces of the experience. You can feel the sort of like day yeah. by day that glow you had fade it can be hard to like sort of weave them together as opposed to sort of having them be separate spaces so i feel like you've spent a lot of time working on this trying to bring it's not just mindfulness but mindfulness for professionals like lawyers that might be really stressed out like you talk a little bit about your like sort of what you've learned about integration through trying to think about how those two things sit together um there's a lot I, i could begin to say but i think the first thing that pops out is um that there are portable practices when it comes to mindfulness. And yes, you can um, engage in like formal practices for mindfulness where you go on extended retreat and you're, um, you know, silent for long periods of time, but not everyone can do that. Um, so I think for integration into day-to-day life, because it's not possible to always be, I mean, for some people you can be a hermit or a monk. Yeah, you can be a monk, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's your path. But for for most of us, or the people that we know at least, um, it's a real thing to have a day job. And I think recognizing that it's a continual process of waking up, right, and just being cognizant to the fact that you can um, bring your mind back to the present moment and rest in the safety of the present moment at any time, but that's a choice. And and you have to remind yourself and be conscious that it's a choice and take that opportunity, like take opportunities to practice that choice. And I know you were at Deer Park where they ring bells, um, but having some sort of attention to various moments in your day where you can begin to wake up again, um, I think can be part of that integration. For me, it's paying attention to transitions, um, how often it is that we get into our car for me getting into my car kind of mindlessly or um you know even turning my phone on or flipping through um something that i would routinely do during the morning or the evening and just bringing some awareness around that so yeah yeah trying to have like little triggers and like everyday activities that you're doing all the time to sort of stop pause like step out of the mindless just doing 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 and exactly have a and, and have a moment yeah yeah i, I like what you're saying about you know it's choose like being in the present moment or deciding to do that is a choice. And I find it almost like one of the most important things we can do is, is to learn what the value is in being in the present moment. Mm. Right. And that's not an intellectual thing. It's a felt sense thing. Right. And I think that's almost one of the most important things about being on a retreat is like you are, you know, on a retreat, you're quiet, you're meditating for, you know, a weekend, a week. um, And you really feel like, Oh wow, like being here and not lost in crazy mindland feels really good and is actually like enjoyable and like ah oh, this is nice. Um and I think that like just getting what the value of it is like deep in your body I think is one of the most powerful things because 
later when you're you know browsing your phone and you know just looking at everyone's feeds or whatever that's the part that'll be that'll remind you like oh wait i used to i i remember feeling much more at peace and calm and in contrast this feels really shitty yeah and oh i can actually choose to take some steps to go towards the former you know totally and um and yeah, I feel like I feel like that for me at least has been one of the huge benefits of, of going on retreats. It's it's like that that state of calm I'm in definitely doesn't last afterwards, and, and sometimes gets violently like yanked from me like hours after returning to the yeah. normal world. Yeah. Yeah. But that's but that sense of oh like how good it can feel is like in me and is always kind of something that's just like you know gently pushing me closer towards that in my daily life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's accessible within you yeah. yeah it's an interesting point the um thing about just like paying attention to really how something feels like i mean maybe some folks out there like i've never been on a retreat or don't have a lot of experience with mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. and don't can't really necessarily imagine it. like oh, what would it how good would that feel to really be sort of present calm in the moment for some extended period of time but i think like one way to think about it is i think most people probably know the really negative feeling that comes with having just like scrolled through Twitter or Instagram mm-hmm. for 45 minutes. And f- and this that like yucky, like, uh, feeling yeah. like, what am I doing? I'm just like chasing these like three second serotonin hits of, of yeah. like a tweet and then moving on constant. Like, I think everyone's probably familiar with that bad feeling. And so if you just imagine basically the opposite of that (laughs) that's like emerge as like one way to think about like sort of what you can access through sort of some of this work i mean there's so many examples of mindlessness in our lives like mindlessly eating a bag of potato chips while you're watching a movie for example um there's also that matt killingsworth study with dan gilbert i think i don't know if you've you've seen the ted talk around it but basically these two harvard psychologists um studied mind wandering in people and had people um uh, there was a, uh, an app that was asking people to track their happiness over the course of you know, some period of time. And um, they were people, participants were asked to report what they were doing at the time and how happy they were. And the study found that it didn't matter like whether or not the activity you were doing was inherently pleasant or unpleasant, like commuting versus like, I don't know, having sex, right? If you weren't present for that experience, chances are you were significantly less happy. And, and so it just goes to show that mind, their conclusion was that mind wandering can actually produce the unhappiness versus the, you know, whatever you're doing producing the unhappiness. So it's real, guys. <laughs> like, it's yeah. measured. Like, if you're not showing up for whatever it is that you're doing, chances are you're going to feel pretty icky about it. Yeah. 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 Um, Who would have thought, like, actually just being there for what you're experiencing is. <laughs> It can be quite enjoyable versus being checked out. Yeah, but it's also like flow state, right? So when you're yeah. highly absorbed in a creative endeavor, you know, whatever that is for you, you you feel that you're showing up fully for whatever it is that you're doing. And that's a very, it's like a, a joyful, ecstatic feeling versus feeling icky and yucky when you're scrolling through a feed. Yeah. Um, we'd love to talk more about retreats. You mentioned retreats. Yeah. And I think like all three of us have been on I mean, I think I've only done one, so you two are much more seasoned retreat astronauts than me. Um, but and maybe you start with just talking about 
what role retreats specifically have played in your mindfulness journey? Yeah, so I've done one retreat as a meditation participant, and the other two retreats were revolved around my own meditation teacher training. But the first Mm -hmm. one I did was actually this January over in Joshua Tree, and it was a five-day silent retreat. And I think what that was... I mean, I think you, you've also talked about how difficult it is to talk about these experiences that are kind yeah. of mystical and, and incredible inwardly, but are really hard to articulate when you, when you come back out. But it, it did feel like a profound shift happened to spend five days in absolute silence. I hadn't ever tried Was that it before. total silence? No, eat, no, at any time. I mean, there was, there were teachings by the teachers. So they spoke, but the rest of the participants, we were in what's called like noble silence where you're are also supposed to take custody, custody over your eyes and like eye contact because oh. the energy that goes into the persona of the self and carrying your identity around is actually, you know, we, we don't often think about that, but it can take a toll too, to feel like you have to you know, establish some sense of being in the world. Um, so the permission to kind of not engage people wow. was also really fascinating. Um, for some people that can feel punitive, for me, it was kind of liberating. I, I'm naturally an introvert. The I in my, or is it the, the I in the yeah. INFJ is, <laughs> is, is introversion. And, um, yeah, just realizing how much energy goes into maintaining a sense of self in the world was kind of profound. Um, showers became immensely pleasurable <laughs> because it was showers are great. Yeah, there wasn't anything else to do really. Like, Shower. I mean, there were. It was kind of an intense retreat. Like we would be up by five something, sit and meditate at six in the morning. Three periods of a three hour period of um, sitting and walking in the morning. Lunch, uh, a short afternoon break, and then more sitting and walking. Um, for like an, a three-hour period. And we would go till 9.30 at night. Like there would be some teaching in the evening and then more sitting. Um, but there would be, you know, one or two hours where you could roam the, the grounds or do whatever you wanted. And just to rest in being, like being a, 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 a human animal being, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have anything to do. It was just this container to like, take showers, take walks. It was pretty great. And and so you've done two more since then. Yeah. The, the other, so you've done three this year. Three this year. Wow. Um, the other two were focused around um, learning more about like the traditional foundations of mindfulness in terms of its Buddhist context. Um, and so it was a little bit, a little bit different than being um, turned inward because there was this teaching aspect. Um, but for me, those two retreats, the, the teacher training retreats, um, were really profound because we were out in Green Gulch, which is um, near um, Muir Woods, yeah. uh, Muir, Muir Beach, um, out in Marin. And it was at the um, San Francisco Zen Center's um, Zen Farm Center. And it's just beautiful out there, um, really gorgeous. And, and to be connected with nature because we're on a farm um, with all these beautiful flowers that they're growing. Um, so for me, those two retreats were really about um, not only the community of teachers I was amongst, but also the community of, of being in, in nature and getting back um, out amongst plants. <laughs> also very important. <laughs> plants. Also, showers and plants. Yeah. Underrated. <laughs> totally. 
Totally. It's good to spend time around other beings that aren't as lost in our crazy mind stories as we are. <laughs> I think uh, it's like that phrase, like, who you know, you, you're the sum of, like, the five people you spend the most time with or whatever. Uh-huh. If you substitute, like, a few of those people with, like, plants and dogs, I feel like. like <laughs> Life would be I better. Like, yeah, you're probably way more sane and healthy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because they're not reflecting back uh, some of our our crazy toxic thinking, which when we're surrounded by it, it just feels completely normal to just be lost in thought all the time, to be worrying about the future and the past and never actually be here now. Um, And yeah, some other beings don't have that problem. It's like, I think that's why people find it actually so, uh, so powerful to, you know, like therapy dogs or to have a dog around or to just spend time in nature, right? To walk around. It's like to be in an environment where none of that, madness and craziness is is reflected back at you and bouncing at you constantly totally and and to really identify it as you were saying like in your body like what the felt sense is to be present i remember when the five day period ended and i turned my phone back on just i felt a surge of energy in my body like it, it was like i the the rush to my head that happened as soon as i turned my phone on was really remarkable like just the Anxiety, I think anxiety I felt around being back in touch with the world and recognizing what a toll it takes to to maintain that, you know? Yeah, in this normally way that's totally invisible. And we just we just price into our experience. So that's yeah. just how it is. But when you step outside of it for a minute and then you step back in, you can actually see it with clarity with, and yeah. feel it with clarity. It's yeah. astounding. But then you, you get desen- – I, I got des- desensitized again and I, you know, find myself often – yeah, like a week Probably. later, you're just like back in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm curious. So, so if someone was listening to this and saying, "Oh, wow! Like retreat. That sounds that sounds amazing." But I don't really have much experience meditating. What do you two think about? Obviously, every retreat's different, right? But let's just say like a standard. If you can just like imagine a generic three to five day meditation retreat. At what quote unquote level or how much quote unquote experience do you think it's useful for someone to have trying to meditate or exploring mindfulness before you go into something like that, if any? I think it really depends on the person and what they're looking to get out of their retreat experience. Um, I know for some people, meditation can be really challenging because especially if they have a history of trauma or depression, um, being still with your own thoughts can actually be kind of really hard. Um, but if you're somebody who relishes in being quiet or silent and um, really wants to explore, then yeah, try it out. See if you like it. Um, yeah, I don't really have a, a, a prescriptive a way of um, advising people, but I, I really think it's about what you want to get out of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's really important, um, to really feel what, what resonates for you or, or, you know, another way of looking at it's like what feels exciting to you or it's like pulling you. And I think that'll be different for, for every person. Um, I think some people, uh, a retreat might be too much and for them, like just going to maybe a weekly meditation group or something, if that sounds exciting and, and enjoyable and if a retreat sounds stressful, then, then that's probably the path for you. And then there are people on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Like there are people who like, they just want to like 
hit dive into the deep end. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They're like, give me that 10 day silent Vipassana retreat. Like where you just sit all day for like 13 hours. Yeah. Focusing on a spot in front of your nose. Like, (laughs) and, and, and honestly for me, like I have no interest in that. Like, um, this, like that kind of like, just like pound you to the ground, like intense experience. Uh, I think when I was younger, there was something about me that was drawn to that. Uh-huh. And now I'm like, nope, <laughs> like I have no, have no desire. And, and I feel like it, yeah, it is really important to, to feel into like what you're actually like excited about. And it's like, whatever you're, you know, you're into, like there's, you'll find your entry point. There's a million ways to explore mindfulness, meditation, this kind of stuff. Um, and there's, there's going to be a way out there that's perfectly tailored to you and like how you like to approach life. So, um, yeah. So I would say like, just really pay attention to that. Yeah. And I'd also love to hear from, from both of you really, maybe that you first, I mean, something that's so interesting to me anytime I'm in conversations like this is we're talking about how powerful and beneficial this can be. This has been in our own lives, right? Like each of the three of us has personal experiences. Like, wow, retreats, mindfulness, like being present with ourselves, being conscious, game changer for my happiness. I would say that. Yeah. I think all three of us would say that. Yeah. And then yet I think I'll say it for myself and I think probably all three of us also really struggle all the time to actually bring that into our lives yeah. on a daily basis. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you two do just on a daily basis to try to actually, there's so much in the world that pulls us away from that constantly, no matter how much intellectually or in our bodies, we know that it's good for us and we'll feel good. Like, How do you, what do you do daily that sort of pushes you back in that direction? Um, I've really tried to be intentional about how I start my day. Um, often it's not as early as I would like, but um, I, when I wake up, I, um, I actually spend an hour, hour and a half, um, reading and writing. That's wow. a form of, it, it's a form of meditation for me to really be immersed in, um, the written word and to, um, have time to like think and write. Um, and I find that that sets the tone for the rest of the day. If I've fulfilled myself creatively, then I feel like I, I can show up for the rest of my life, the rest of my day and the things that I want to do in a more full and present way. Um, so being cognizant about how I'm starting my day is part of that. Um, I try to meditate half an hour a day. I don't always do it, but, um, it is also really helpful to have a designated time to be still. Um, so that certainly helps. Um, I also am attentive to like transitions in my day and, um, try to come back. Like even if I don't have a period of formal sitting meditation, just as I'm engaged in different facets of my day to remind myself, okay, like stop, come back. Um, there's an acronym I really like. I don't know if you've heard of the RAIN acronym. And I would actually use this often when I was practicing law, but so, um, R as in, um, recognize, A as in accept, I as in, um, investigate and N as in non-identify. So whenever you realize that you are in a period of like overreactivity, for example, something's triggered you um, to recognize that that's happening. So identify that you are experiencing a moment of reactivity, accepting that that's the case because so often our struggle comes in wishing that things were other than they actually are. Um, the I, the investigatory aspect is to identify like what's happening in your body in response to whatever's happening that's triggering. And the N is really crucial to like realize that you don't have to be your thoughts 
and to step outside. So I often use that tool when I find myself getting caught up in some like really sticky thought to just step outside of it for a second and come back to the fact that I don't have to follow this line of thinking or be swept up in something that's um, unnecessarily triggering or um, causing me a lot of angst right now. So, yeah. 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 And do you use that? So you do you work uh, primarily with like other lawyers or other people who are have stressful uh, jobs? Yeah, my kind of. my primary um, client base are kind of uh, high stress professionals, people yeah. who are burning out, really, um, as well as blocked creatives. Um, but I think anybody can really benefit from learning tools that help them just loosen the grip of the stickiness of whatever is happening in their lives that's causing suffering or reactivity um and to be able to step outside of that a little bit yeah and so do you find like like the rain acronym is helpful for for these clients um i i mean i teach it because it worked for me like i would sit at my desk and watch when i was practicing law full-time and watch emails come in like in sheets when i was really busy like the emails would just come in yeah like a couple of times that visual it was crazy (laughs) exactly i mean you're laughing but i would sit there like (laughs) try to close a transaction and the emails would just be Uh, streaming in and uh, i would just have to stop and like okay recognize that this is a period of like reactivity you can't change it like this is what you've signed up to do for now um accept it um don't struggle against it right because so often i think my pain point is like ah like why is this happening to me and it's so easy to like devolve into this like pity party for yourself for myself um but it's happening right like meet the moment as it is and then to recognize that it was causing like you know chest palpitations and like you know lightness of breath and just to come back to the body um and the end is sometimes also um, other teachers have also said nurture as opposed to non-identify so like a moment of self-compassion i like that yeah for for yourself like when for myself to recognize okay this is hard but you know i need to just take some time to like 10 like even a, a few breaths and i would put my hand on my heart really and just like self-soothe for a second and then i was able to meet the moment much more readily than like freaking out, you know, but we're yeah. so often in that freak out mode and it's just not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't actually do anything no. for us. I mean, it's like it makes the situation it, worse. <laughs> presumably it served some function to like help us identify threats and protect us from lions that were going to eat us, whatever, blah, blah. You know, it evolved in the brain for some sort of survival reason yeah. in a radically different context right. than I mean, where we're living. Now. Fight or flight. Yeah. It did not evolve in the times of sheets of emails. Sheets of emails. Not a tiger, you know. Yeah. Just, it's, but modern workplaces have evolved such that you know we see threat. We're primed to see threats in in the form of very inane things. <laughs> emails. Yeah. yeah. Sheets yeah. of emails. Um, <laughs> and and just to put a finer point on that, from my own experience, then you can um, say whether or not this holds true for you, but. When I've had similar practices in the past, not using that acronym, but just when I'm in a place in my life where I'm a little more in touch with that process and able to catch myself in sort of destructive thought loops or like high anxiety periods and identify, observe, and sort of like then sort of, yeah, have a little bit of separation Mm -hmm. between me and, and that process. It's not like, oh, like, and then poof, like the bad feeling goes away and I feel awesome and like I'm 
blissed out or all of a sudden I'm in flow, right? It's not like a, it's not a swing from, oh, I was so unhappy and now I'm great. Or I'm so unhappy and now I'm just like neutral. Like I still like feel bad usually in those contexts, but that the bad feeling has a different character to it. It's like, it's like, it's just sort of sitting next to me instead of like strangling me, you know, totally. something like that. To, to be able to relate to something as opposed to react to it. Like, I think that's a, a subtle difference. But when you're able to like be on the balcony as opposed to being, you know, on the ground in the thick of whatever it is that you're experiencing, that sense of remove um, empowers you to relate and respond versus reacting out of you know, fear or whatever it is that you're experiencing that's triggering. Yeah. Yeah. I think just early on in my journey before I sort of understood that, I think I thought I would try to sort of do some of these like methods or approaches broadly when I was feeling bad, anxious, angry, reactive, and it it wouldn't like fix everything. So I was like, oh, it's not working. Like I'm not able to like snap it as a magical flow set you know yeah. but that's not it's not what it's about it's not that sort of like simple zero and one no but it, they're like little minute shifts though that over time like i think in the aggregate it's mind training really what what mindfulness and meditation is aimed at doing is is priming the mind inclining the mind towards greater and greater states of um, compassion acceptance presence um so that when shit really does like hit the fan in like epic ways you're equipped to deal with it. They have tools. Yeah. 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 We've, Jamie, you and I have talked about it as like working out before. I forget where we got that metaphor from <laughs> or you got that metaphor from, but I've always liked that. Totally. Think about just like yeah. doing reps, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 Like a lot of people freak out that, you know, they keep losing, you know, whatever the stillness and oh, thoughts keep entering my head and I have to keep, you know, get coming back to the present moment. It's like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. And it's like, no, no, no you're those that's you doing the reps like every time you come back from being in a thought and you come back here and you come back to yeah to this moment it's like you're doing a rep you're making it that much easier for the next time and the next time and like and you're training your brain for it to habitually do that like to get to the point where as soon as it starts to notice that it's in thought land, it, it just starts to bring itself out faster and faster. Yeah. So, I, And I think for people who are new to meditation, like one thing that, um, you know, I think we've, we've all experienced is recognizing that you don't have to be your thoughts. When you explain this to people who, who work, I mean, as lawyers, you deal with words and concepts all day long and other professions as well. Um, to say, like, you don't have to believe your thoughts is like kind of crazy to them but it's true like we our brains just generate thoughts you know where do your thoughts come from how you know how do you even pinpoint where they come from they, yeah they, where's the you that created that thought it, yeah. exactly it just they just are um but you don't have to get swept up by them you can create some space um a teacher i like named tara brock likes to say your thoughts are real but not true you don't you don't have to buy into every single thing that crosses your oh god if they're all true god help I know, right? <laughs> seriously you'd be in trouble but the other thing i'll say is that for people who are starting out um even if the shifts aren't quite like large gains or you don't you know reach your blissed out level um the the other added point to that is that sometimes it can feel like it gets worse before it gets better because you're paying Mm -hmm. attention to what it is that you're experiencing and that heightened level of awareness of perhaps your own suffering you know can can lead to a sense that oh my gosh this feels really bad right now but know that that's because you've shed additional light onto perhaps an area of pain and I, certainly for myself i felt like as i 
paid more attention to my own anxiety and stress at work, I, I realized that I had to make a change. And, and that's the benefit, too, of yeah. more awareness. Yeah. Yeah, the pain was always there. Mm-hmm. You were just ignoring it. <laughs> yeah. And, and by ignoring it, I mean, maybe there's like a small reduction in, in how painful it feels during the day. Although I would argue, no, you know, it's like it, just cause you're not aware of it doesn't, doesn't mean it's not sucking the living life out of you. Yeah. Um, but the really great benefit of being more sharply aware of this pain, even if it hurts maybe a little more acutely, is that you can do something about it. Like once you're aware that there's this pain there and you realize, oh my God, every time I see this sheet of email, <laughs> I freak out, I'm getting heart palpitations and wow, this is happening 50 times a day. Right. Oh, and this is happening seven days a week. Like you, all of a sudden you start to realize like, oh, maybe I should do something about this. Totally. And, and one of the practices <laughs> um, that uh, we were taught to do is like noting practices, right? Where you basically label what it is that's coming up for you as you're meditating. So as thoughts arise, you attach a non-judgmental label to it. So like thinking, planning, um, you know, uh, sensation, if you're experiencing a bodily sensation, sensation. But the more you practice with this noting practice, you begin to identify themes, Right. If I'm constantly planning, it's probably because I'm prone to like being a little bit anxious and thinking about the future. And it, whatever happens um, in the context of your meditation, it's kind of a metaphor for what's happening in your life, really. And you begin to pick up on the narratives. Like, why am I always here in this future headspace? What does that do to me? Um, what can I then change about my life that can orient me in a direction that isn't so future, you know, focused? So. Yeah, I like the, I, I hadn't thought about it in a mindfulness or meditation context, it can get sort of a little worse before it gets better. But that, when you said that, it, it resonated for me. Um, and I think one one way in which it clicked is actually thinking about not just in terms of mindfulness, but actually in terms of relationships. Mm-hmm. I think like that's a, that's it. Like me think about bringing more consciousness and intentionality and realness to relationships. Like I know I feel like whenever I'm in, like Sarah and I are in a tough time for a week or a month or whatever, we're going through something, have an issue, can't mm-hmm. resolve. I always have these moments where I'm like, wait, but there's plenty of couples out here that, that just like, just don't deal with it, right? They <laughs> just like, just don't have these <laughs> yes. like fights or conversations or whatever. They just like, it just sort of slides under the surface and they just, and I'm like, oh, that does sound tempting. <laughs> like, this is really hard <laughs> right now. I would like to just avoid this, you know? But, um, so there's that feeling of like, oh, wow, this is in this moment, this relationship is actually much harder because we're trying to do things more consciously. Mm-hmm. And that's like a co- you feel the cost, you know, mm-hmm. but then inevitably every time, whether it takes a week, a month longer, like after we actually work through whatever was really, really tough for us, we get to this next level that's like, oh, that was totally worth it, yeah. you know? And yeah, that's like, I feel like there's a similar cycle or process of sort of almost internal conflict and, and then resolution and growth that is maybe part of what you're talking about Totally, there. totally. I mean, I think back to the conversation you guys had with with Connor, right? And like, you can you can escape this if you want, if you wanted to just keep pursuing, you know, yeah. outside options. But where does that lead you ultimately? Like if you keep avoiding whatever it is that is preventing you from like, in, you know, in that conversation, commitment, or um, in this context, like just waking up to your own life, um, what would that do to you in the long term? You know, are you showing up for your life as fully as you you want to be? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I'm curious what. So, 
you're not just practicing mindfulness, you're actually teaching it now mm -hmm. and it's as part of your profession. So curious what you've learned as you've made the transition from just practicing to teaching, what have you learned f about mindfulness from teaching that you sort of wouldn't have learned or hadn't learned from just being a practitioner? That's really fascinating. Um, I think that's a good question. Um, I think preparing myself to teach mindfulness has meant that I've had to one, better understand the context from which it arises. So mindfulness does have Buddhist origins. Um, so part of my training was um, better understanding um, kind of the, I don't want to say theological because it isn't theology necessarily, but the Buddhist um, underpinnings. The, phil the philosophical exactly. Buddhist origins. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, uh, the ethics that accompany mm. um, Buddhist teachings. Um, I have a greater appreciation for some of um, the ideas. Like I'm really fascinated by emptiness. I, and mm. I want to do a deeper dive into what all of this means. Um, so this is more kind of like my theoretical curiosity around mindfulness, but in terms of implementing um, and teaching it to other people, I think what has really stood out to me is the importance of, um, of fostering the sense of beginner's mind mm. because when I first encountered these ideas, I mean, I was so taken by them because I, they were new to me, but when I'm teaching it, you know, I'm sharing things that I've shared a number of times, but can I, my, my challenge to myself is can I still maintain that sense of wonder and curiosity mm. and be present for seeing it click with my students? Like, that's a really precious moment to see that, yeah, I've taught this a number of times, but when I see that connection being made in the eyes of my students, it's really, it's really empowering. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, let's say if there's someone listening to this podcast now who is, you know, one of these uh, highly stressed lawyers or professionals, um, would you have any tips or any any anything like kind of tangible or some advice that you could kind of give them to maybe start this journey towards being a little less stressed out and a little more at peace? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I heard when I was super stressed out and experiencing chest pains was the present moment is safe, right? Like it's when we time travel, either projecting forward or projecting backward, um, that we feel like things are really unstable. But, you know, barring any extreme threat of bodily harm, like chances are, like, if you're experiencing a moment of reactivity, you are probably, you know, if you're a lawyer, maybe sitting at your desk, like right here, right now, like nothing catastrophic has happened just yet. So just resting in the present moment and being aware of the fact that you may be traveling either forward or backward and giving yourself permission to stay in the moment, right? I, I, I often um, say that attention is the energy of our lives and how you manage your attention um, really affects whether or not you're showing up fully for what it is that you want to do, whatever it is that you want to do. Um, so it doesn't take a whole lot to, to be in the present, right? Like you can do that in a couple of breaths. Um, but you need to give yourself the permission to do that, right? It's okay to stop. Yeah. yeah. And right here, right now, it's actually like, you're safe. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, um, in your experience, 
people are sort of just getting started or have tried before and not gotten that far and maybe gotten frustrated and given up on sort of this mindfulness journey, however you define that. Is it helpful for folks to have a person or a center or community sort of as a guide, a coach, or someone like you, a place like Inside LA, some other community, a meetup group? I mean, is that is that important, you think, for most people helping them get started? I think it, I mean, accountability in any form is always helpful. I mean, even like using an app can be a starting point if you find yourself in a place where you don't have a community readily accessible. But even like saying to a friend, like, hey, like I'm trying this thing out. Like, do you want to test it out with me? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, so the, the three jewels of, of Buddhism are the the Dharma, so the truth, the teachings, the, the Sangha, and... I knew this was happening, but I put a blank on the um, uh, third one. Um, anyway, but the song of being the community of people yeah. that you're practicing with. Um, so I do think community is really important because you can really spur each other on. And I think the sense of being around other people who are fully um, engaged in the similar act of trying to be mindful is, is really inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and um, yeah, just kind of your whole perspective on this with our listeners. It's, it's been a really great conversation. Thanks so much for having uh, me. And I, I yeah. remember the third jewel. It's the Buddha. <laughs> there we go. Oh, you know, of all no things deal. to forget. It's okay. He, he won't be offended. <laughs> I think. He doesn't care. He's not attached. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's not attached. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's totally attached. <laughs> And Can't get a reaction out of that guy. <laughs> and on that note, that brings us to the end of the show because everything is ephemeral. Um, <laughs> Annette, uh, where can listeners keep up with you on the internet or online? Sure, I have my website. It's um, AnnetteWong.com, www.AnnetteWong.com. And um, you can also um, listen to my podcast with my co-host, Sarah um, at break form which is um on itunes overcast wherever you get your podcasts so cool and can you share just a little bit about what your guys' podcast is about it really began because sarah and i were having a lot of um conversations with wine about how much we didn't like being lawyers and we're trying to transition out um so but it's a conversation about um challenging conventional notions around creativity career and success because i think we were both navigating leaving kind of a traditional idea of what a successful job looked like and having to redefine that for ourselves and we were really interested in people who took creative risks which is why sarah rose sarah rose one poor rose was one of our guests too because those (laughs) journeys and those transitions are really fascinating to us so that's what we talk about Great. And and just for listeners to know, uh, Gabe's wife, Sarah, transitioned from being a lawyer to now doing uh, interior design, very creative job. So she definitely did break form, I guess. It's a weird coincidence. All these lawyers want to do something else. That's just <laughs> yeah. like, that's so odd. What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> they love the sheets, jobs. man. <laughs> the sheets, the sheets. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, you can find all episodes of our podcast, Guys With Feelings, at guyswithfeelings.co. Uh, shoot us an email at guyswithfeelingsshow at gmail.com. Not, not too many of you. Just just maybe one or two emails. We don't, we don't want, want sheets. Sheets. Yeah, please. I don't want to get heart palpitations. We'll take sheets of reviews, but not sheets of emails. <laughs> Music for the podcast is by Broke for Free. And if you're feeling generous or not, leave us a review on the iTunes store. 
And yeah, that'll do it for this episode. Until next time, we hope everyone out there is able to embrace the lows, celebrate the highs, and appreciate the messy journey in between. We'll see you guys next time. Bye, everyone.